We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans themselves. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. I would always think that the dignity of man requires people feeling like our government is our government, that we have the dignity to govern ourselves. Yes, it can be done, but... There's awful lot of resistance that comes to that. People are nervous about people governing themselves. It's been a long tradition of uh, well, making sure that the people on the streets don't have too much power. That can get messy after all. But this election year, wow, is it ever different. It's shaking up the power structures. And before we get to our guest today, Bob Borisage, talking about uh, a populist uprising, I wanted to read a quote from a Vermont newspaper, an independent Vermont newspaper called The Commons. Really good newspaper. The author is Dan DeWalt. Check this out. Quote, Pity the poor political parties. Their movers and shakers can only quiver as their best laid plans have gone awry. Their presidential electoral machines, well oiled by special interests, were supposed to give us the usual choice between two establishment ruling class representatives. This year's ticket was supposed to be another Bush-Clinton affair. What these mainstream party leaders and members don't understand is the depth of our collective disgust, dismay, and outrage at how they have served while striving to join a tiny, unrepresentative group of this country's most wealthy in the process weakening, if not fatally wounding, our democratic institutions. The party's leaders must by now have an inkling that they are about to be bowled over by something that they can't control. End of quote. I like that uh, start to this. Our guest today is Bob Borisage. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Well, Bob Borisage has a new article called New Hampshire, Populist Uprising, which appeared in many journals. Borisage is the founder and president of the Institute of America's Future and co-director of its sister organization, the Campaign for America's Future, which I hope you all have heard of. Mr. Borisage writes widely on political, economic, and national security issues. He's a contributing editor at The Nation and a regular blogger on Huffington Post. His articles have appeared in the American Prospect, Washington Post, New York Times, Philadelphia Inquirer, and he edits the campaign's Making Sense Issues Guides and is co-editor of Taking Back America, with Katrina Vanden Heuvel and The Next Agenda with Roger Hickey. Borisage is the founder and board chair of Progressive Majority. And in your spare time, <laughs> thanks for being with us again. 
Populism has been a, an American tradition since at least Shays' Rebellion in the 1780s as the Constitution was shaping, say, taking shape. It seems to me that Shays' Rebellion raised the key question of who and what interests our government serves. Bob Borisas, how would you define populism? Well, we have a, you know, populism is a historical movement. Um, it generally is uh, defined as uh, small farmers, small business people, workers coming together uh, with a, and beginning to have a common understanding that uh, the rules were rigged against them by very powerful interests. So the populist movement, the original populist movement, grew up in the late uh, 1800s, uh, as small farmers and small business people were choked by the railroads and the big banks, uh, and really uh, began to create their own understanding of how the game was, uh, the deck was stacked against them. And it is that anger and sense of injustice that the government was not representing uh, the vast majority, but was representing uh, the very few that is at the essence of populist populism and populist movements. Yeah, interesting, that whole 1880s, 1890s period with uh, uh, William Jennings Bryant as the champion of populism. He didn't win, ran a few times, and obviously he was up against, as you mentioned, the powerful interests of the railroads, which just really had tremendous. You can't overstate how much political and, and money power they had in the United States. Uh, you were certainly correct in your observation about uh, New Hampshire, where the show was coming from, that, quote, the scope of Sanders' victory took virtually all observers by surprise, unquote. Nobody expected Bernie Sanders to beat Hillary Clinton in Clinton-friendly New Hampshire by 22 points. I mean, my hopes were maybe 12, 15 points as a Bernie supporter, uh, but 22 points. Some of the words used were a drubbing, she was trounced, a landslide, pummeled, as you write in your article, 80% of the voters are worried about the economy. Sanders won two-thirds of their votes. Clinton won a majority of those who were not too worried, end of quote. Now, in just about every election in recent decades, blue-collar Americans have voted in favor of the interests of the wealthiest and against their own interests. Again, as you point out, Clinton won a majority of those who were not too worried about the economy, what happened this year? How did how did the blue collar workers, uh, s- such few as there are, get you know turn around? What happened this year? Well, I think that what's what's happened uh, since the uh, financial collapse is this growth of a, an understanding among more and more Americans about how rigged the rules are, and they watched the banks get bailed out while homeowners uh, were not. They watched the uh, wealthiest people in America recover quickly and gain more and, you know, capture 90% of the growth uh, in the society uh, while uh, middle class and working families continued to lose ground. Um, And then there were movements like Occupy that uh, galvanized uh, that understanding and helped people understand it. That gave Obama the message in part that he used to beat Romney, and so it sent the message even further about what was going on. Uh, And then you have a real tribune in the field with Bernie Sanders uh, being very clear about his analysis and being very credible in it, 
in, in presenting it. Um, and so uh, I think it gave people a real a sense that there was an alternative out there and they wanted to rally to them. It is surprising, though. I mean, New Hampshire is the state that, uh, you know, brought Bill Clinton back in 92. Gave Hillary a stunning victory in 2008 over Obama and kept her campaign alive. Um, and so it was in many ways. While the you know uh, the Clintons wanted to paint it as next door to Vermont, so it didn't matter. It was in many <laughs> right. cases a home state for the Clintons. Absolutely, and, uh, the margin of this uh, this victory was quite stunning. And it's true. It's it's so interesting that that she tried to use that bordering state stuff six months ago. Virtually nobody even heard of Bernie Sanders here in New Hampshire, and, and Clinton had 100% name recognition. It, it, it's interesting how those tactics uh, get tend to get used, and maybe people aren't as dumb as uh, the uh, establishment would like to think. And, you know, and, and people have, uh, even the people who are most aff- badly affected by the rigged economy, have tended to vote for the leaders of that rigged economy. But I, I think you're right. The the uh, the Occupy Wall Street thing, you know, some people say, well, it didn't work. Whatever happened to it? But it did work. It changed the language. I think everybody knows what the 99%, what that means now. And changing the language is huge, or as Bernie would say, huge. Uh, <laughs> throughout this campaign, Bob Borisage, young people have been coming out in droves now, his opponents have been painting Bernie Sanders as kind of a cranky old man. Uh, to be honest, I'm at a loss. I am not a young person. Uh, I'm at a loss to explain this phenomenon. You want to take a shot? Why is it that young people are going for, for this guy? What is it? Well, to be fair, Bernie is a cranky old man. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> and um, So it makes it even more uh, fascinating. Uh, clearly, the appeal is, I think, starts with integrity. The fact that he chose to fund his campaign with small uh, donations raised Amazing. largely over the social media uh, made what he said uh, more credible. He proved his independence by being able by being willing to walk the walk, uh, and then his message uh, is very powerful, and it goes to a generation that is, you know, inheriting a, a climate that is changing catastrophically and much more rapidly because of the failure of our uh, ability to deal with climate change. They are inheriting ma- and burdened by massive student debts uh, and going into an economy that has fewer opportunities and many more low-wage jobs uh, that makes it even harder for them to pay off their debts. And so their sense that uh, of his... the the truth of his message that, that this this economy is rigged and our politics are corrupt um, is uh, felt uh, in their own lives and experienced in their own lives. And then his credibility means that they were willing to to turn him from a cranky old man into a you know a kind of social icon. A, 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 he's sort of he's sort of hip now among young people. Um, and you know he he won. Voters under 29 by 85 to 14 in both essentially in both Iowa and New Hampshire, which is just Amazing. staggering that margin. Yeah. Um, and uh, it goes to the sense of wanting a different politics, wanting someone who uh, had some integrity and was willing to take a risk, and uh, and it goes to the, the power of his message to their to their personal lives. Uh, but what about, I mean, Gloria Steinem said, that's where the boys are. That's why the young women are going to uh, Bernie Sanders, where the boys are. <laughs> what do you think the effect of that was? 
I think Gloria uh, sort of regrets the the quip, <laughs> I'm uh, sure. and uh, and you know this uh, I, you know, she's an uh, extraordinary campaigner for feminism through her life. Oh, so, yeah. um, but uh, and I don't think it's about that. I think the young women uh, really uh, uh, spoke back rather clearly about uh, how angry that made them. Uh, they weren't. They're not voting with boys. They're yeah. they're voting on uh, on real personal interests and what they think. Uh, who they think will is saying the things that need to be said and, and has a better chance of creating change. That's the other thing that's the big difference between Sanders and Clinton that I think is noticeable and certainly appeals to young people. I mean, basically, Hillary's message has been, no, we can't. Um, right. We can't get anything big done. Uh, what, we, what you can do is elect me, and I'll meet in the back rooms with Mitch McConnell, and we'll hmm. find you know, kind of slivers of common ground, and right. we can move forward inch by inch. Um, and, you know, that's unappealing to, to our generation, but it's surely unappealing to young people who are dealing with these huge burdens. And Sanders is saying, yeah, no, you're right, the obstacles are huge, but the only way we overcome them is to create a political movement that puts all the politicians on notice. If you don't get out of the way, uh, we're going to run you over. And uh, yeah. certainly for young people, that's enormously more attractive than electing Hillary to go into the back rooms and cut a deal. If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Live, Bert Cohen here, our guest today, Bob Borisage, who's written an article in lots of different uh, publications, New Hampshire, Populist Uprising. He's with Campaign for America's Future. You should, of course, know his stuff if you listen to this show. You write that uh, Clinton won a majority of those voters for whom electability was a major concern. And let's face it, I, to me, Beating the Republicans is absolutely crucial. These guys are nuts, and I want to talk about uh, them as well. But y you also observe that New Hampshire raises significant questions about Clinton's electability. Is the old conventional wisdom really taking a beating? What, what is the old conventional wisdom uh, with regard to Clinton's electability being more electable than Bernie? Well, the overwhelming assumption among pundits, and I think among most activist Democrats going into the election, was uh, Hillary's a known quantity. Uh, she's got experience. She's very uh, smart. She uh, is a you know, kind of an extraordinary leader, and so she's electable. Uh, whereas Bernie uh, is, uh, you know, he calls himself a democratic socialist, and you can right. imagine the billion dollars worth of ads Republicans will run on him, you know basically saying he's a communist right. and wants to give the country away. And so he's uh, much less electable. And, but I think what the early, pri you know, it's early, but the, what the early primaries have shown is um, both the, the uh, strength of his message and his integrity, uh, which uh, starts to remove some of those doubts. He's, he's defined uh, democratic socialism in a way that is enormously attractive, certainly to young people and to, uh, to much of the Democratic Party, entering uh, mm -hmm. it in the tradition of FDR and, mm -hmm. and Roosevelt. Um, and it's, but it's also revealed uh, you know, the problems that uh, Hillary Clinton faces. Uh, it's a problem uh, with uh, having these huge numbers about uh, honesty and, and uh, trustworthiness. Absolutely. Uh, which is true not just among Republicans, but among independents and Democrats as well. She lost those people who, uh, the, the majority that uh, think of her as untrustworthy overwhelmingly in, the, in New Hampshire. Uh, it's a pr and 
you know, it's a problem with all the associated scandals around uh, her stuff. And Bernie, of course, has chosen not to go after the email scandal, uh, I think, correctly. But yes. Republicans yes. Will, will go continue to go nuts about it. <laughs> um, the money stuff is, uh, I think, a, an enormous uh, uh, problem for her in terms of anyone being able to... Uh, in a sense, believe what she's saying about the kinds of reforms she wants to champion. Right. So, uh, you know, both the personal money from Wall Street, the foundation money from Wall oh, Street, yeah. the way she's funding her campaign. She just left the campaign trail yesterday to have a fundraiser, or I guess it's today, to have a fundraiser with the Blackstone, Blackstone Group, which is headed by the the hedge fund operator who said that uh, getting rid of his tax break, the carried interest tax break, would be like Hitler invading Poland. Uh, and, uh, you know, these things are, are corrosive, I believe, to her as a candidate. So I think uh, what we've seen in the early primaries, uh, alarmingly for Democrats, because you're right, we, God forbid that any of these yahoos on the other side get elected president. Yeah. Um, but what we've seen is real concerns that have to be, that people uh, have to have about Hillary, about Hillary Clinton's electability, uh, as opposed to Bernie and in relationship to Bernie Sanders' electability. Electability is always a comparative issue, and what we've learned in the first months of this campaign, anyway, is that uh, uh, Hillary Clinton has is, uh, more troubles than we would like. No, no, electability, trust. You know, I, I, I've, I've long said, you know, just go out in the street anywhere in America and just ask average people, not politicos, but just average people, how they feel about Hillary Clinton. It, to me, it, it's just like it's right there. People just don't trust her. Now, many we're talking about populism here. Many observers say that both Sanders and Donald Trump are populist. This often lumped in the, in the same sense. In what senses is this accurate? Is there a left populism and a right populism? Is Trump also a populist? He's certainly upsetting the establishment of his party. Yeah, Trump uh, is an interesting candidate in the sense that uh, he, like Sanders, is uh, assaulting some of the, the bipartisan establishment consensus that uh, is at the basis, I think, of of how the economy is rigged against him. So he's railed against these trade deals, which in fact have been ruinous in terms of American manufacturing and, and uh, uh, working class uh, uh, families. He rails against... Uh, the corruption of our politics, and he uses his self-funding as a billionaire to show that he's as independent as Sanders, who's using mass funding as his basis of uh, independence. And and Trump lays out, you know, criticizes his opponents as being bought and sold and corrupted. He um, has uh, railed against uh, Wall Street and the big banks. He's uh, so there's a lot of he's d defended Social Security and Medicare, the chief uh, FDR social, uh, mm. Johnson socialist programs of our uh, of our age. So there's yeah. a lot of Trump that is an echo or or on issues is the same in terms of challenge as Sanders in terms of challenging the bipartisan consensus of the of the establishment. Uh, the right wing stuff, of course, is what brought him to prominence, the, the uh, uh, kind of assault on immigrants, the uh, right. blood libel against uh, Mexicans, the, and then the assault on Muslims, the uh, over-the-top uh, rhetoric about torture and 
terror and, and what have you. Um, and that is the right-wing uh, version of populism. You know, populism always, uh, it started with this kind of understanding that uh, the powerful were were rigging the rules against common people. Mm-hmm. Historically, it, uh, uh, demagogues always tried to split it off by playing on our racial divides. Uh, and so in the South, populist, the Populist Party uh, ran into uh, politicians that would, uh, instead of using populism and, and railing against Wall Street and the big banks, would use race and, and uh, raise the flag about about uh, populists trying to create an, a, a cross-racial alliance in order to break uh, the populist surge and get people to vote for conservative candidates. Then populist candidates, not wanting to be out-race-baited, started running uh, kind of with the same racial signaling. So, uh, yeah, there's always been a, a, a right-wing populism based much more on a nationalist sensibility and a, uh, uh, a uh, kind of aggressive uh, Jacksonian uh, military uh, sensibility and a uh, and playing on our racial divides in order to uh, get people to vote, uh, get working and, and poor people to vote, in a sense, against their class interests uh, uh, in, in another way. Yeah, we've seen a lot of that through history, certainly. And, and the nationalism uh, comes in, and that's certainly where, where Trump has uh, made his mark. And uh, we've seen it, you know, in the 30s in Europe, let's say. Uh, and But but that's very different. But, it is, you know, there's sort of an interesting thing going on in the reverse side in the Democratic primary which is, I wouldn't call it a right-wing populism, but what uh, Clinton is now doing is saying, look, this uh, uh, economic stuff is a single issue, breaking up oh, the right. banks. This is a single issue. And this is, uh, it's not going to say, you could break up the banks, but it's not going to solve racial, uh, structural racism. And it's not going to get immigration done. And essentially she's she's appealing to the black and Latino voters on the basis of specific, uh, racially specific appeals to counter uh, and, and, and playing that against the broader class-based analysis that Sanders is arguing that we're all getting screwed by these uh, by Wall Street and, and we've got to take them on. I have to give uh, Clinton a lot of credit. She's, she's got some terrific people on her campaign, I know, here in New Hampshire, where the show is coming from. They had uh, absolutely faultless uh, ground operation, had the best people. Something about the candidate's message. But I think that's a very good point that you just read, Bob Borsash, about uh, you know, trying to make him the issue now and get pe- people confused about what his message is and, yeah, manipulate that. And the Tea Party certainly, uh, a, a lot of the people, I've long felt that a lot of the people who were drawn to the Tea Party had real legitimate reasons to be angry because, you know, this government is not our government and then, clearly, they were manipulated. We've seen that manipulation happen, as I mentioned, in, in Europe in the 30s. And it's, it happened with the Tea Party. I think the, the power of those manipulating the Tea Party has, has diminished greatly. But it can be manipulated. And certainly, populism frightens many. There's the old specter of peasants with pitchforks. <laughs> and it's real. I mean, the French Revolution comes to mind when what sounded like a noble cause led to a serious reign of terror where heads were being chopped off like crazy. It was some scary times. I mean, America's founders in the early 1800s were aware 
of the horrible, bloody excesses of the French Revolution. So it wasn't a, a representative form of government instituted in part to check the anarchic power of an untamed populist revolt? I wonder if you could speak to that, please. Well, there's no question that Madison uh, and others in designing the Constitution uh, used checks and balances, uh, the Senate uh, and the House with their different electoral terms, uh, the presidency, uh, the division of powers between the national government and the states and localities. That was all uh, designed to make uh, it uh, factions harder to form on the basis of, uh, of class interests so that they would be divided and it would be harder to get change done. In in many ways, the Constitution was was designed uh, to slow the process of change rather than encourage it because they were worried about about this kind of of populist fervor, about the the vast majority using their voting power uh, to go after uh, the the wealthy and, and the privileged. Yeah, and that's a lot of... I think how Shays' rebellion was was handled was that the Constitution kind of balanced. It wasn't for the yeoman farmers, the working people, or allegedly the, just the super rich. It was kind of balancing both. And as you mentioned, you know, the forming of our government, the United States Senate was intended to be like a House of Lords, where they weren't elected. You know, they were chosen by the legislatures of the states to keep a check on the people. Now, you know, it's often hard to keep the voice of the people down, especially when they're getting uh, screwed, shall we say. <laughs> and, and what we've seen in our history, and that's what's so interesting about this period, is, you know, at the dawn of industrialization, when you began to build these big industrial combines and, and right. huge uh, Carnegie Steel and Standard Oil and big monopolies, uh, and working people were working uh, seven days a week and 15-hour days with labor unions uh, ruled as a restraint of trade and, and outlawed by the courts. Uh, you saw these populist and progressive popular movements uh, challenging both parties and forcing an agenda that would make the new industrial economy not just work for the, uh, create fortunes for the few, but work for uh, a broader uh, range of people. So you got the weekend, you got the 40-hour week, mm-hmm. you got overtime, you got minimum wage, uh, fair labor standards, antitrust, etc. out of the progressive period. And then we went back uh, into, uh, again, a, a very conservative time, and uh, massive inequality, gilded age inequality, right. headed into the Great Depression. And in the Great Depression, Roosevelt and Democrats and popular movements, particularly grounded on the labor union movement, created a set of reforms that tamed finance capital and brought banks under control and made them uh, service the real economy, that uh, lifted uh, the uh, workers so that they could organize and and share in the rewards of the productivity they helped create, that uh, and and did taxes at, you know, the top-end taxes at 90% uh, at the highest rate. And, Mm -hmm. And over the next 20 years, we had our best growth, we had uh, a moderation of inequality, so there was a great uh, uh, kind of growth of the broad middle class that ma- has made America distinctive, and uh, and we became a less and less unequal society. Then we went to the Reagan period and reversed all that, and now yeah. we're back to this massive Gilded Age inequality with the 1% uh, capturing as much wealth and income as they did on the verge of the Great Depression. And the real question is whether popular movements can once more 
uh, use the democracy uh, to uh, make this economy once more an economy of shared prosperity and growth. And, and uh, you know, the Sanders campaign is, uh, I think, part of the process that uh, is utterly necessary to make that happen. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We are on Keeping Democracy Alive. It's a group effort, I assure you. Our guest today, uh, Bob Borisaj, uh, uh, he's written an article about populist uprising. He's with uh, Campaign for America's Future. And, and you were talking about the period of relative... I mean, I grew up in the 50s when there was a big middle class, huge middle class, pretty much. I mean, there was racism, Lord knows. But aside from that... Uh, it, it, mo- most people were doing reasonably well. And under that horrible socialist leader, Dwight Eisenhower, as you mentioned, the taxes on this, that portion of income above a certain amount were very, very high. And I'm not sure how many listening to this are familiar with a stunningly successful Southern populist from the mid-1930s by the name of Huey Long. I'm just going to take just a few seconds here. Take a listen to a clip of a speech he gave in December 1935. According to the tables which we have assembled, it is our estimate that 4% of the American people own 85% of the wealth of America and that over 70% of the people of America don't own enough to pay the debts that they owe. How many men ever went to a barbecue and would let one man take off the table what's intended for nine-tenths of the people to eat? The only way you'll ever be able to feed the balance of the people is to make that man come back and bring back some of that grub he ain't got no business with. Now, I don't know if everybody could understand that very old tape and some of his uh, southern drawl, Huey Long, saying, talking about, you ever go to a barbecue where... Very few people eat all the food. And he's saying, time to give some of that back. This was Huey Long back in 1935, a Southerner. Huey Long worried FDR very much. Uh, FDR, of course, was running for re-election in 1936, and Huey Long was taken down by an assassin's bullet. But the worry about the populist strength of Huey Long uh, clearly had the effect the people were not powerless it had an effect on fdr doing all he could to absorb that populist message uh, i have long thought this southern history of populism might help bernie should he be able to call it up and and here's a thought from a facebook friend from the deep south her name is sigrid uh, van horn she says living in the south i know that comparing bernie's ideas to those of fdr is a winner Many Southerners bred amongst tobacco and kudzu will resist socialism, no matter how it is served up. But they loved that man to this day and will listen when you mention his name, FDR. And I believe, I hope I'm not jumping the gun here, but I believe Bernie Sanders will have an ad soon featuring FDR. Your your comments about that, please, Bob Borsars. Yeah, I think Sanders has quite explicitly grounded his politics, his uh, version of democratic socialism, in uh, FDR and the New Deal, and in the more progressive parts of the New Deal. So uh, one of the things that Huey Long and the Townsend committees around uh, uh, social, what became Social Security and the labor movement 
did is they propelled a politics that pushed uh, Roosevelt uh, to be much more bold in the second New Deal than he had been uh, in the first New Deal. And so you got the Wagner Act that gave uh, workers the right to organize and Social Security and uh, uh, an investment agenda and uh, a jobs program that was uh, far broader than Roosevelt uh, imagined going into office in 32, uh, in part because these movements empowered progressives in the, in the Congress and, and pushed Roosevelt to move. And that's one of the things that will uh, and should come out of the Sanders campaign uh, at this time, is you've got progressives in the House and Senate, uh, and uh, no matter who we elect in the fall, uh, they've got to be, uh, this, these movements have got to keep pushing and drive an agenda through them that is bolder than uh, the, the president who gets elected ever imagines going in. Uh, and that's the only way you kind of get the changes that actually begin to make uh, the structural differences for people. Yeah, that's true. And uh, that, that saying, it's impossible. One of my favorite, this may surprise people, uh, one of my favorite uh, pieces of graffiti from the 1968 French student worker uprising was, be realistic, demand the impossible. You know, people, you have to push for what you really want in order to eventually compromise. People have faulted, I think correctly, Obama for compromising way too easy and thinking he could work uh, with these uh, Republicans who are just against everything he was for. Uh, and, but I, I wonder about this, uh, you know, the, the idea of, of pushing hard. I mean, and one of the strengths, I think, that the establishment of both parties has relied on is people believing in our own powerlessness. So many people, as, a, as opposed to the 60s, I don't know if you were around then, but I sure was, uh, when people had a sense of power, we ended the war in Vietnam. We changed civil rights dramatically. People had power. The, one of the most effective tools, I think, that the establishment has had is that people really don't have power. You have to just accept your powerlessness. I wonder if that concept is being taken on at this moment. I'm getting the sense that it is. Well, there's no question that's at the center of the argument uh, between uh, Clinton and Sanders, and it's at the center of the argument in the fall uh, it, when you watch to see whether Reagan Democrats, the working uh, right, class, right. mostly white uh, workers that uh, were attracted to Reagan uh, and and have been a centerpiece of the Republican Party and, and yeah. now the Tea Party, whether they are kind of uh, in revolt against their own establishment and looking for some uh, a leader who will actually represent their interests. So this is going to be an amazing time for that. And it's an incredibly important time for candidates to lay out a big vision about what's possible and to empower people. You know, Obama started that in 08 when, with his campaign of Yes, We Can, right. and, and, and really summoned uh, the millennial generation into politics. Um, as an anti-war uh, reformer, he spent the last weeks of his campaign arguing with Joe the Plumber about uh, his <laughs> desire to spread the wealth around and to, to redistribute money. And, and, uh, and he really... Uh, uh, inspired a young generation to come in and propel his candidacy to the upset victory uh, over Hillary Clinton on the primaries and then to the presidency. Uh, 
Uh, and now you see uh, Sanders uh, kind of repeating that energy and summoning up that energy again. Whether uh, We'll see whether he's strong enough to overcome the Clinton advantages this time, but uh, there's no question that he's, uh, he's laying out a message that's a big vision about what's possible, and he's challenging people. It's only possible if we're in motion. It can't mm-hmm. be done by a president. It's not going to be done by one person. It's certainly not right. going to be done in the back rooms. It can only be done if people are aroused and in motion. And and he's offering people that choice. You've got to make the choice uh, to, to change the world uh, in the way. That, but he's saying to them, it's possible to do it. We've done it before, um, and and we've got to do it now. And so uh, it's an yeah. interesting time. Ch- challenging that that ex- widespread acceptance of powerlessness is is really big. It's it's really big because people have so much accepted that there's nothing I can do. You know, can't go out in the street. Doesn't matter. But it does. The history is there, and maybe, you know, maybe it's attractive enough so that people are being uh, drawn to that. Some people, uh, mainstream Democrats, who are concerned, they suggest that the proper role of Bernie Sanders is to, uh, somewhat like uh, uh, Huey Long did to FDR, pull Hillary on these issues. But then again, people like me worry that. She'll say anything for votes now and switch her position later. Uh, a lot of people, friends, relatives even, have said, yeah, Bernie, it's good, it's good. He's pulling Hillary to the left. W- what do you think about that? Well, I think uh, there's no question that he is pulling her to the left. Uh, and, of course, this challenge has gotten much stronger than uh, anyone sure. would have imagined. And so now you've got the the, the Clinton campaign certainly in some degree of panic about whether he's not only going to push the pull to the left, but whether he's starting to, to win and gain momentum to actually compete for the nomination. Um, and, uh, you know, that remains to be seen, and that depends on how people respond and, and how they operate. But it is stunning that he has been able, uh, with small donations, to match her financial power uh, and the power of Wall Street and Silicon Valley and Hollywood, which is overwhelmingly uh, behind her with the big, the deep pockets. Um, And it's stunning that he's been able to to have this kind of attractiveness among young people. Now the challenge is, uh, can he introduce himself to African Americans and Latinos and to and create the same phenomena there. All of the gatekeepers in those communities are with uh, Hillary Clinton on the Democratic side. Um, And it will own, they will, you know, he will only succeed if he can reach beyond them uh, into and appeal to the idealism and the energy of a young generation uh, in, in those communities. And so, uh, this process is incredibly important. You know, people don't really this is, you know, one of these politics is when people get a sense of being educated, and uh, uh, and so this is uh, and paying attention a little bit at least to politics, and and this is uh, an incredibly important time because of that. You know, one of the things that's interesting to me is everybody says, well, God, this is going to be a catastrophe. This is going to be another McGovern. This is going to be oh, like yeah. Goldwater. He's going to lose forty-nine of fifty states if he gets the nomination. Democrats will never recover. But that's, of course, what Republicans said about Ronald Reagan in 1980, that he was carrying voodoo economics, that he was a nutcase, that he was had a kind of variable relationship, to, a cinematic relationship to reality, all of which was true, uh, and that he would be another Goldwater and he'd lose uh, to Carter overwhelmingly. Uh, and Reagan didn't back down from what he was saying um, and uh, you know, issued a, a, a very uh, strong critique about 
at a time when it was in deep trouble uh, and, it, and the people were scared about the economy and they were scared about uh, uh, what was going on in the world with Americans held hostage in Iran. And, uh, and you know, even though uh, John Anderson ran, uh, a Republican ran a third party challenge to Reagan uh, because he was so extreme uh, and Bush denounced his economics as voodoo economics, he won the nomination, and he won the presidency, and he inaugurated a conservative era that we suffer from to this day. Yeah. Um, and so uh, it is possible to do change, in that case change in the wrong way, uh, and it is possible to have uh, candidates that represent significant changes, not just issue a great challenge that forces uh, the establishment candidates to tack to the wind, but also yeah. uh, actually win and change the world. Yeah, interesting how there are so many people, Democrats in particular, uh, I don't know about Republicans, uh, I do know about Democrats, who say, oh, you got to just hew to the center, the center, the center, the center. Don't upset anything. And uh, an old friend of mine, and probably yours too, Jim Hightower, used to say that in, in Texas, there's only two things in the middle of the road, yellow stripes and dead armadillos. My sense is that this, you know, just belief in moving to the center as as the way and that if you're not on the center boy you're taking a risk i'm not sure that 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 applies in the year 2016 if you just tuned in bert cohen here on keeping democracy alive our guest today bob borisage of uh founder and president president of institute for america's future co-director of uh campaign for america's future he writes for many different uh, journals and writes very insightfully, I believe. And back to Trump a little bit. It, you know, there's a split. The, the Democratic Party establishment is obviously rather upset with Bernie Sanders. But I wonder if, if Donald Trump may be more of a threat to the Republican establishment than Bernie is to the Democratic establishment. What are your thoughts on that? Well, there's no question that Trump has been uh, sort of like a grenade on the Republican uh, uh, primaries, his, uh, his kind of waging a campaign of personal insult and uh, and vitriol uh, has to be alarming to Republicans. This is the most unpopular uh, political leader in the country by polling. Yeah. Uh, once you get out, you, know, you, you ask people across the country, and, and deservedly so. Uh, and so, yeah, if you're the Republican establishment, uh, you got to be upset that he's uh, maintained his his viability uh, as long as he has. Now, the other day, he he issued an extraordinary attack, uh, well deserved, on George Bush. Uh, you know, kind of not backing away from his earlier call that he might be impeached, arguing that he lied us into war in Iraq, which is true, but. Yeah not true among Republicans. <laughs> and he did it in South Carolina, headed into the South Carolina uh, primary. And in South Carolina, among Republicans, George Bush is has popularity ratings of about 80%. Hmm. So Jeb brought George in immediately after the debate to uh, campaign with right. him a bit, etc. And now we've seen in the most recent polling that Trump has, Trump's lead in the state may have uh, declined dramatically and. uh, uh and he may be uh, he may be coming down from the the uh, the, the heights that he had previously enjoyed and suffering for his uh, for his assault on on the establishment. 
Ironically, though, the number two person who's gained from no, all this no. is uh, Ted Cruz, who is equally extreme, even more extreme than oh, Trump. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and actually, uh, unlike Trump, I think kind of objectively evil. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Totally evil. I mean, he would wipe out, if he could, freedom of religion, which I kind of value. You know, I mean, just, just for starters there, that it, I would think he might upset the Republican Party but I don't know. I mean, the, the 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 idea that Trump is out of control, Bernie Sanders is out of control. But it, it it seems to me one huge difference is Bernie has actual solutions, whereas uh, Trump seems to be like the worst of of historic populism. It's those others. It's those others. You know, it's not us. And you know. It, there's a lot of real differences there. I I don't know. I mean, I wonder if uh, you know if it came. Well, down- I think that's an incredibly important point you made, and ought to be emphasized. That is, Sanders is not out of control. Sanders is uh, laying down a coherent argument about where we are, and what is happening to people, and why this economy does not work for them, and how the the rules are rigged, and our corrupted politics uh, allows it to be rigged that I think is uh, inarguable in actual fact. Uh, he lays it down uh, relentlessly, constantly, uh, uh, with great integrity because of the way he's run his campaign. And so this is a powerful uh, analysis for people to hear, and it's not at all out of control. It is very compelling. And you may decide, he, you know, you don't want to vote for him because he's too old or he right. can't win or... Uh, uh, you know he's uh, he he doesn't appeal, but there is no question that what he's saying uh, is uh, makes a lot of sense to people uh, even beyond those who are voting for him. Mm. And, uh, and unlike uh, the kind of tempestuous race Trump has run, he hasn't run a, a race of personal insult against uh, his opponent. Uh, he's right. talked to Americans about where we are and where we need to go, and, uh, and has played an enormously uh, valuable uh, role in in, uh, in driving a, 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 a uh, an analysis that people have to hear and wrestle with. You know, I've heard some some Hillary people charge that. Oh, look, Bernie's getting support from Republicans. I tell you, I have talked to people I know who are Republicans, and I have been really genuinely taken aback by how much they say, you know, I trust Bernie Sanders, and, you know, a lot of what he says, you know, is really right. That's one of the reasons I think he can win. Uh, And, again, you know, the long uh, establishment, the establishments of, of both political parties have long fought against the influence of populism. You know, power doesn't give up without a fight. They like their power. And I remember some mental health advice. I don't know where I heard this many years ago. The more you resist, the more it persists. And I wonder if that applies to Republicans and Democrats on this long, suppressed, uh, sometimes big, sometimes not so big uh, tradition of populism. The more you resist, the more it persists. Might it be blowing out like it happens with people who deny their mental health problems. Well, we we uh we live in a populist moment that is uh the uh, the inequality uh is extreme, the corruption of our politics is apparent. The uh blow up in the in the great recession where the excesses of the banks, the financial community exploded the world economy. 
uh, and really ravaged uh, middle class and working class families uh, is clear. And, you know, uh, for the most part, people generally, when they run into troubles economically, they lose their job or they get into debt or they lose their home, they blame themselves. And they think if I'd only gotten a better education or if I'd only chosen a different job or if I'd only worked harder, uh, if I didn't drink too much or whatever, if I hadn't gotten divorced, uh, I'd be in better shape. Yeah, they blame themselves. Uh, And what's happened because uh, the financial uh, collapse was so profound and it wiped out, uh, you know, kind of a broad swath of homeowners and and working people and and the recovery hasn't yet reached them is that people are starting to understand, hey, wait a minute, this isn't about uh, what mistakes I made. Sure, I made mistakes maybe, but this is about something where the deck is stacked against me and people like me. And uh, that's an incredibly uh, empowering and uh, and uh, uh, kind of revolutionary uh, understanding. And it leads you to be... Uh, interested in both what Sanders is saying and in his call for a political revolution where people mobilize to take back the government and make it work for them. Interesting. Early on in this campaign, when Bernie was using uh, the phrase a political revolution, <coughs> excuse me, many of his handlers were saying, revolution, you really want to... But he was, that's what he did. Bernie just does what he wants to do. And it seems to be activating people. And what you're talking about, I know is true. I've done shows about this, about people blaming themselves for their own economic difficulties when it's not their fault. And that kind of challenges so many of our long-held beliefs in the myth, and it is completely a myth, of rugged individualism. Uh, and to do that is that is a political revolution. It's kind of a cultural revolution as well to, to realize hey, you know what? This rigged economy is real. It's actually affecting us. And amazingly enough, people seem to be getting it. Um, and, and Bob, you have argued, and I think we, need, we recognize here that you know this is going to be a long race. I don't think Clinton's going to pull out anytime soon. Uh, I don't see Bernie pulling out anytime soon. And again, we, we have to beat the Republicans. There's just no question about that. There's way too much at stake. You argue that, quote, what Clinton needs is a clear, ringing statement of where she wants to take the country, how she wants to mobilize support to make the long overdue changes we need, how she's ready to join with the great majority and take on the special interests, big money, and right-wing zealots standing in the way. Her tendency, as you say, to argue that I know how to do this that she can negotiate and find slivers of common ground with the Republicans isn't the answer. My own sense, uh, end of quote, my own sense from the many decades of campaign participation is that it's more important this year than any time I recall. How important to winning now during the process in November is it for her to tackle this head on? I don't see her doing this yet. She seems very reluctant to, as you say, you know, spell out a vision. And now she wants to, she seems to have shifted tax and just making Bernie the issue. It, can she do this convincingly, do you think? Is it still possible? Because still, we got to beat the Republicans, even if Hillary is, you know, left as our choice. Uh, I, of course it's still possible. You can, you know, uh, most Americans are just uh, beginning to pay attention. Uh, True. To, you know, that we're in a presidential campaign. So she can, even though she's very well known and has universal 
name recognition, she can represent herself to Americans you know, at the convention if she wins the nomination. That's true, yeah. And do this. Um, and the other thing that I think ought to be uh, increasingly clear is that if Republicans nominate um, the kind of uh, leaders of the, the the current leaders in their in their uh, primaries, Trump or or Cruz, uh, you know, uh, a, a ham sandwich could beat them in the general. Uh, Americans, yeah, the vast majority of Americans, are not going to vote for those candidates, and so uh, I think. Uh, the uh, uh, Clinton yeah. can win this race, even if uh, she, with all the baggage she has, uh, if those, that's what the choice is. Uh, and there's no right. question the Sanders people will rally to her uh, faced with that threat. Well, but the real question is, can she get a mandate enough if she's the candidate to to actually create change uh, that we desperately need? Because if she can't, then. Uh, you know, a failed a failed first term will lead to uh, the potential of a horrendous set of reverses in 2020, which happens to be the reapportionment year, oh my, yes. um, uh, with, Very with really dangerous uh, effects for Democrats. And so, the the need for a clear uh, kind of uh, inspiring statement about where you want to take the country, I think, is important for her personally. It's important for her candidacy, but it's also important if she's the nominee. For the presidency, that uh, that uh, she will, uh, I hope, uh, then uh, you know, uh, govern and and, uh, and take on. Boy, I hope you're right. And I, I back in 1999, I remember watching then Governor George W. Bush of Texas, thinking, "Oh my goodness, I hope he runs for president. There's no way he could win." <laughs> That's true. Uh, so it makes me very, very nervous. Now, a great many of my uh, establishment Democratic friends worry that should Hillary become the nominee, Bernie's legions might sit it out. You know, I've seen these phrases, Bernie or bust, which concerns me very much. And if the Bernie people sit at it, sit it out and Hillary does become the nominee, it could elect a very, very dangerous Republican. My feeling is when it comes down to it, they won't. They'll see the danger. But what are your thoughts on this, Bob Borsage? I think in presidential elections, uh, uh, it, the uh, Republicans are counting on Clinton or Sanders to mobilize their party and reunify their party uh, and get their base out. And I think Democrats uh, sensibly think that the Republican nominee will be scary enough that it will help unify their party and and um, and get the uh, get the vote out. And there's no question that both Clinton and Sanders, uh, no matter who wins the nomination, they will both stump for the winner and and encourage their people to participate, yeah. etc. Uh, I do think that if you if Again, if you don't have a message that inspires people, uh, the dutiful will show up, but it, you won't get the surge of voters and energy that you would get if you if you did have that message. Yeah, it does really have to happen. So as just to, to wrap it up here, this is a populist moment. Uh, I'm hoping it can continue. We have a huge country ahead of us. There haven't been that many races as of yet. Uh, can it continue? Populism sometimes gets out of control. Lord knows, you know, the picture of peasants with pitchforks. I think that kind of thing actually helped Pat Buchanan back in 1996. Uh, are you hopeful for uh, a good kind of outcome of this populist moment, no matter what? 
I think I'm one of those people who thinks we need a hell of a lot more pitchforks at this point. <laughs> the power of the entrenched power of uh, of money in our in our society, and, uh, of the financialization of our economy, the uh, conservative economic policies that have bipartisan approval desperately need to be challenged, and uh, we need a lot more peasants with pitchforks or uh, uh, people with uh, ballots uh, out uh, creating a. Uh, a revolution that uh, that really challenges those those folks and and forces a very new deal in this economy and yeah. uh, I think what we, what's exciting about this moment is um, at a time when most people thought this wasn't uh, you know this was not going to be the year that this was going to be a Bush Clinton race where right. the establishment was going to reassert itself uh, you see in both parties uh, people are looking for alternatives. Uh, and and demanding uh, a change in course, and that's uh, that's that's the beginning of a hopeful time. Oh, good. It's always good to hear an optimistic note, Bob Borisaj. If people are interested in following your work, any particular website you'd suggest? Yeah, um, the campaign is at ourfuture.org, ourfuture.org, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm my what I write always appears there, uh, and I recommend it. All right. Well, thank you so much for being with us on as part of Keeping Democracy Alive. That is what it's about. Thank you so much. Future. This is an old song. Simplistic, but it fits. Thanks so much. Email me, bert at bertcohen.com.